I was toting my pack along the dusty Winnemucca Road When along came a semi with a high-end canvas-covered load If you're going to Winnemucca Mac with me, you can ride And so I climbed into the cab and then I settled down inside He asked me if I'd seen a road with so much dust and sand And I said, listen, I've traveled every road in this here land I've been everywhere, man, I've been everywhere, man Across the deserts, bare man, I breathe the mountain air, man I've traveled, I've had my share, man, I've been everywhere Hello everybody and welcome to Austria This is Bernie, Bernie Aird and I've got my special guest today, Pete Gardner, who's going to talk a little bit about his life. And we'll have some more music from Peter later on in his life story. Pete, welcome. Good morning. Good morning, Bernie. Thanks very much for the welcome back to Austria. I always enjoy coming back here. And uh, it's more or less been my second home for the last 40 years. And especially the last 20, when I came here playing uh, music and uh, as you know I was born in the West Riding of Yorkshire yeah in uh, 1940 and uh, I was raised in a little town called Barnalls which is in between Skipton and Burnley uh, Skipton of course is in Yorkshire and Burnley is in Lancashire which is a, a big thing to me because I'm a York I class myself as a Yorkshire yeah you certainly yeah. Certainly are. <laughs> and uh, when I, I was very small, I was probably born to the clatter of the uh, Lancashire cotton looms uh, because the town Barn Oldswick was famous for its cotton industry. Mm. And uh, occasionally we used to stick our heads in the door of the weaving sheds and uh, the women would be there holding conversations <laughs> with lip reading and hand signals. The hand signals I give aren't anything like they used to do them, but, uh, <laughs> but that's another thing. But I thought, I always thought it was very, very clever where they could hold a conversation with one another while they were uh, weaving cotton, and they, and they held a conversation about where they'd been last night, or, or probably where they were going tonight, yeah. all this, and, and uh, it's always intrigued me. And they have a little museum in uh, Burnley with some of the uh, old Lancashire looms and, and this. And as you moved further into Lancashire, it was a spinning industry where they spun the cotton. Mm. And uh, they brought the, the spun cotton into Lancashire and into the mills and uh, then it was woven into cloth, of course. Yeah. And uh, the other big uh, industry in uh, our area... Uh, was and still is engineering. Yeah. And many of the people who went through their apprenticeship uh, at engineering companies, uh, many of them opened their own companies at later. And uh, probably quite a lot of them uh, had served the time at Rolls-Royce, uh -huh. which was formerly the Rover Company uh, when I was a child. And then uh, Sir Frank Whittle in 1939 was uh, developing the gas turbine engine and it was later uh, brought to uh, the factory at, at Bankfield in Barnoldswick and uh, at some time it changed into Rolls-Royce. Right. 
and uh, he was uh, developing this engine and the uh, they used to run these engines several times a day mm. and the big silences at the back, maybe 100 foot long. And uh, and the other industry was the dairy industry because all the uh, the town was surrounded by farms yeah. and they were all dairy farms. So we had a lot of uh, cows in the area and a lot, a lot of sheep, mm-hmm. uh, thousands of sheep. And also, besides the dairy industry, uh, we also had uh, a young guy who'd come out of the Navy called Thomas Clark, and he started a bedding company, which later became Silent Night Beds. And it's now the biggest, uh, or the largest, bedding company in Europe. Mm. And, uh, and there's a lot of people work there, probably 400 people, work in the company they have gone a little bit less lately as have rolls royce yeah which i can remember as a a young boy they employed about five thousand people and they were busing uh engineers in from burnley and nelson and as far as rottenstall which was probably 25 miles away mm. to to work on these the things that they were Burning into the jet turbine engines, or the the turbine blades, etc. Yeah. So you had the the spinning and the cotton industry. Then you had the engineering, and then you had uh, what else did you have? Sorry, the bedding, I, industry. The bedding industry. Yeah. Um, did did the workers ever get accused of sleeping on the job, or is that only well occasionally? Uh, no, I don't think. Uh, but uh, if if they had, it wouldn't have mattered. Uh, <laughs> But anyway, Pete, uh, Pete, going back to the cotton industry, if I may intersperse just just briefly. Yeah. Can you give the listeners an idea of what kind of years were this? Because that's been the cotton industry is completely well, I, gone. I should have thought the cotton industry was something started uh, probably in the thirties or, or, or even before this. Yeah. And there's uh, quite a lot of uh, people made very rich. Uh, this these mill owners and mm. and then of course you had the spin off from the the uh, cotton industry where where the engineering companies some of the engineering companies were what they call millwrights right and they looked after the the mill engines which were was uh, steam fired so the, to to get the steam up you, you had to have a couple of guys in a in a in this sort of furnace room where mm. they fed the they fed the coal into the to these furnaces which heated the water to drive the engine which drove the, all the uh, the shafts for the to work the looms yeah yeah and you, so uh, there were several offspins of that mm. and you were saying um sorry if i'm taking the words out of your mouth but you were saying you used to hear the people going to work in the morning oh, they were yeah yeah the, the people all used to wear would you believe clogs Mm. Wooden clogs with leather. And that was another thing. There was lots of cloggers, people who made clogs in the town. And, ah. uh, but you, you can imagine with four or 500 people walking down the road wearing clogs, it was quite a clatter. <laughs> and, uh, and they wore the clogs because they were comfortable yeah. to, to wear because they were stood up all day. 12 hours a day they were stood up 
uh, weaving cloth. Oh God, yeah, and uh, and doing all this sign language, which I also I found fascinating, and the noise in in these weaving sheds. Jesus Christ, it was <laughs> really loud. Yeah, and yeah. Uh, you know, it, for it'd be interesting today whether the the environment would allow this. Yeah, because uh, you know they try to treat anything with. Uh, anything that isn't just uh, normal, they they want to they want to do something about it. Yeah, and um, the industry has completely died out, hasn't it, Peter? Yeah, the yeah. They cleared they cleared all the looms out in the mid fifties, and they sent them to India or uh, somewhere like that. Mm. And all the weaving industry went to India, uh, the sub Indian continent, and uh, so. The, and also, the woolen industry was in 30 miles, 35 miles away, around Bradford, the woolen industry. Yeah. But now, there isn't a woolen industry either, or a cotton industry. And the, the, everything's made abroad in Taiwan and India and all this kind of thing. Yeah. Which, all this industry was in our area. Exactly. But uh, from... Uh, the Rolls-Royce side of the, the game, uh, many people who'd served the time at Rolls-Royce, they're very skilled engineers, by the way, and uh, and they set up a little business of their own and did subcontracting, would you believe, to Rolls-Royce. Mm. Now, Rolls-Royce have uh, built a big factory in Singapore. Yeah. And a lot of uh, the main work now the big fan blades at the front of the jet engines that you see, they're made in Singapore. So that, and they sent a lot of workers out from Barnoldswick to teach these people how to make these things properly. Yeah. And, of course, they've worked the cell out of a business. And where an industry at Ro- uh, like Rolls-Royce once employed 5,000 people, there's an article in our local paper only two, three weeks ago, and they're now down to 350 people working there. Incredible, yeah. That's, uh, which I find pretty incredible, you know. And the coronavirus will have reduced the amount of engines they're producing, I presume? Well, Another thing that I learned, which uh, I don't think anybody, any of your listeners would know, but Rolls-Royce gave the engines to these aeroplane companies, the companies building the Airbuses and all this kind of thing, but they got paid for the engine when it was actually flying in the air. That is... So as you can see, with no aeroplanes flying, Bernie... Mm. Uh, for the last six months or so, yeah. Rolls-Royce haven't been making any money because there's been nothing up in the air. So it's where still they only got paid for for when they were flying. Yeah, and is it, is it still made on that basis? That yes, they... it's... Uh, the, well, yeah, as far as I know, they were made on that basis, but it, it just seems to me that the engine is given to these companies and they get paid back when they fly, wow. which I find a bit ridiculous. It, it's... Probably like Mercedes Benz giving a wagon away, and you only pay us when it's running. <laughs> well, well. I, I, however, the for uh, a business on that, I'll never know. Yeah, it's hard uh, to believe, isn't it? There you go. You know, but the the Rolls Royce factory, they they had the Bankfield factory, they had uh, another one called the Gilbrow. Yeah, and uh, they also had several other. 
places that they moved into. When the cotton industry gave over, they took over. Rolls-Royce put a load of machines in there, and there's uh, all the guys. They were working 24 hours a day. Mm. And uh, and there was the 5,000 workers, where now there's 350. Yeah. And uh, and so the industry has gone down, but uh, the engineering places are struggling because yeah. they used to subcontractor Rolls Royce as well, you know, former workers there, but, uh, opened, made a little company up and yeah. subcontracted to Rolls Royce and found a niche in there. To, and one of the guys, a friend of mine, who uh, who had served his time at Rolls Royce, he started a, a business up. At the back of me, when I had my uh, haulage industry, he started up in a little place at the back of me making uh, brakes for mountain bikes. Ah, and yes. Making pedals and the uh, sprockets for the chains, chain mm. sprockets. And he started up at the back of me, and now in, in, I used to un- unload the aluminium bars for him into his factory and and uh, but now he has a huge mill which was which was formerly a cotton mill ah. and uh, and before uh, after that it was a, a big printing company mm. and and when the printing company went bust uh, this guy bought this mill uh-huh. and he has a, a track round the back from this factory where he tests out the the parts that he makes and now he makes bikes and mm. you know these three thousand four thousand quid bicycles fitted up with all this latest technology and and they say you can pick one of these bikes up with one finger amazing uh, they saw they saw light it's carbon fiber and yeah stuff like that and carbon carbon fiber of course has done a lot of other industries out because aluminium was the lightest metal uh-huh. and now they're incorporating they're making bikes out of this and it's also making airplanes lighter so that they can oh. fly further yeah of course and uh, so that that about covers uh, that type of uh, uh, industry Interesting. just tells you a little bit maybe you could uh, look up on a map where barnoldswick is it uh, and as I say, it's in between Skip, uh, Skipton in Yorkshire and Burnley in Lancashire. Yeah. And uh, it was a, a very, very uh, busy town. Yeah, I must admit, I, I've been there a couple of times, Pete, as you know, uh, to visit you. And um, it's I used to go wrong. I used to take the wrong road to get to your place. And then I discovered the town. It was very, very pretty. I and think you discovered the little pub down at uh, Salterford. That's right. Which, uh, that's another story. They used to bring salt on donkeys into our area. Yeah. And, and there was a ford, mm. which is... Uh, so they called this little place that they had to travel through Salter's Ford, ah. which got its name now as Salterforth. But in that little town, uh, well, it's just a village, really. There is a pub there, and the cellar uh, has stalactites in it. <laughs> and anybody who doesn't know the difference between stalactites and stalagmites... Uh, stalagmites glow upwards ah. and like a woman's tights stalactites come down <laughs> so that's just a, another little anecdote oh, hey. that, 
uh, and and of course uh, the seller is below the level of the Leeds and Liverpool Canal, so the, ah. it's got a natural coldness to it as the beer. Yeah. So you don't get a warm beer. Like you do in, in some places. At <laughs> no, very interesting, that. Yeah, it's yeah, quite an interesting thing. I enjoyed yeah. that. I don't know who I was with. Was I on my own? I think I may have been. I, yeah, I just ended up there, Pete. And uh, then I discovered Barn Oldswick, and it's a very historic place and a very attractive place. For me, you know, living in Austria now 15 years, it was great to go back to the UK and see those original buildings. And Yeah. Yeah, yeah really, really uh, good. Yeah, there are a lot of uh, the so some of the people in the weaving industry uh, were uh, had little houses. They were called back to backs. There was one room downstairs and one room upstairs. There yeah. was sort of living living quarters downstairs, and the bedroom was uh, the breeding ground was upstairs. <laughs> and uh, and these people, would you believe, used to work in the in their houses. They were doing uh, work for the cotton industry. So they were doing homeworking in those days. Homeworking, yes. Like like is going on now. Yeah, isn't that interesting? People uh, of COVID-19 are working from home. Well, these people work from home as uh, way back in the late 20s and the 30s and 40s. Yeah. What sort of work were they doing at home, Pete? I I don't know, but it was something to do with uh, maybe inspecting cloth or Uh, uh, something like this or... yeah. uh, Maybe spinning. I have mm. no idea. Interesting. But, uh, they, they were uh, little back-to-back w- uh, houses. Yeah, I can imagine. Where the people lived and mm. they were subcontracted sort of thing to the cotton industry. I got you. Yeah, yeah. 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 Very, very interesting. Very good. Thanks, Pete. Like I explained about the uh, bulldozer driving and stuff like that, and I did mm. that for quite a while, and uh, worked with some very interested people who had some good ideas, and we made a a product with the bulldozer that was uh, really, really improved than how it was from previous bulldozers that this company had built, mm. which was the whole idea of it in any case. Uh, the young guy, Colin Holt, who was in charge of this, he uh, he was striving to to put automatic gearboxes on, an engine a little bit more powerful, and uh, have it all, uh, you know, o- automatic, like bulldozers were coming at that time, like trucks are today. Yeah. And, uh, and then, uh, I, as I say, I went driving trucks, and I, I drove trucks for various companies for a few years, I mean, mainly out of quarries and stuff like that, and uh, doing distance work down into places like London, and which I hated. Uh, I hated the cities because I'm a, a Con- you know, I'm a country boy, really. Yeah. But uh, anyway, I was driving these uh, trucks for these companies, and I thought the... Descending you one way and you loaded and then you were coming back empty. So what I thought, what I thought for myself, I think I'll have a, a bit of a go at this. And anyway, things didn't work out how I wanted. And uh, and I went working for a, a fella doing flagging and draining mm-hmm. uh, on, a, on a big housing estate in Aslinden in Lancashire. 
And uh, I was working for this guy for quite a while and doing uh, doing all these drives and and that. And uh, uh, I, a friend of mine, he, he said he was going to go to America. Did I fancy going? And I said, uh, yeah, man, that sounds okay. And I've been working for this guy, Joe Moran, for uh, for a couple of years. And uh, I quite enjoyed that work. And uh, and I said to him one day, hey, Joe, have you a minute? And he came over and I says, uh, right, I says, uh, I'm going to have a two or three months break from this job and I'm going to go to America. He said, yeah, well, he says, I can't guarantee you a job when that comes back. I said, well, I'm not too worried about that. I said, I'm just, you know, trying to be up front with you. I'm going to go to America, which I did. Mm. And I stayed out there. We travelled all over Mer- America, me and my friend, and we met a lot of uh, nice people. And uh, and I eventually came back, and I had no job. I was married, a couple of kids at the time. Mm. And... Uh, and anyway, I went into a pub one one night, and there was this bloke stood at the bar who I knew, and uh, and we got talking, and he says, "What are you doing these days, Pete?" And I says, "Well, actually, I said I've just come back from America," and uh, I said, "I haven't got a job." He says, "Well, do you fancy doing some work with me?" And I says, "Well, what sort of work are you doing?" And he says, "Well, I'm uh, doing all these shower cubes." cubicles and stuff and he was working for a company called the Aronson brothers yeah and uh, the Aronson family which we name like that obviously tells you the Jewish ah of course and uh, and anyway he fixed me up with an interview to see this fella and uh, go Bob Simpson and I went to see Bob Simpson and uh, he said well uh, would you be interested in buying it, buying your own uh, van and, and doing some work for us? And I said, yeah, as far as, uh, be fine, as long as you can keep me going. I said, I don't want to do a fortnight and uh, buy a van and then have no work for the van. He said, no, no, he says, I can keep you going. Mm. So I was running up and down to London and uh, stuff like this and picking loads up. Uh, local, taking them down to London. And uh, then I was bringing loads back from London of the shower queue because all this bathroom equipment. Yeah. And uh, and then, unfortunately, one night I'd got home and uh, I was in bed late at night and uh, there was a knock on the door and the two police guys stood there. And uh, and I thought, well, I wonder what I've done wrong here. But yeah. anyway, they said uh, you was working with this with this fella, and he mentioned his name, which I won't mention now, Gus. Uh, but he says he's uh, he's just been killed about an hour ago. Mm. Would you come and identify him in the mortuary? And I'd never done anything like that. I've seen dead people, of course, and one thing or another, but uh, uh, I'd never seen anything like that of a, a, a bloke laid out on the mortuary slab. No. And uh, and I said, yeah, this is the guy uh, 
there's one or two other things they asked, which I won't I won't repeat because uh it wouldn't do to do that. No. And uh and anyway, so I was left on my own after this block previous in the previous three or four weeks had asked me to work with him, and then all of a sudden I'm on my own. Mm. So uh so I conveyed this news to uh, people who were down in London, etc. And pretty soon I was asked if I could supply them with another vehicle and, and a driver, which yeah. I did. And then uh, I'd probably supplied another three, four, five vehicles, all Mercedes-Benz. Uh-huh. And... Uh, um, when I when I was a young guy, I remember my parents always telling me that uh, which we can go back to the milk round and the paper round that I had. If you ever want anything, buy it and and that. So I used to save up like mad and and buy these trucks. Yeah. And uh, and at that time, uh, the trucks were quite reasonable. I thought in prices. Mm. So I bought these trucks and I, I, I knew plenty of drivers who uh, threw me truck driving times and uh, I went and poached these good guys, <laughs> which which is what you do, I suppose. Yeah, you know, there is a lot I of that. Did, yeah, you know, you mm. get the guys who can do the job. Mm. And the first one that I got was a good pal of mine, a, uh, called John Martindale, Marty, and... He was he was such a funny guy, was Marty. He could tell you at the drop of heart how many days it was to Christmas, <laughs> and uh, and and what was happening on uh, the archers. He would, he could, oh God. When you met up with him, hey, have you heard today, Gardner, about you know? And he'd tell you all about archers that day. I thought, what a boring bastard listening yeah. to archers. I hate that program. You know, I never listened <laughs> to that. I was too busy listening to. The Tony Blackburn in the morning uh, and uh, Steve Wright in the afternoon. Oh, yeah. And uh, with Mr. Angry, yeah, I'll <laughs> tell you, I was born in a skip, me, and all this kind of thing. <laughs> and uh, and he had the old woman on who used to do the cleaning in the uh, right. studio, I suppose. And he used to call it old woman. I used to laugh like hell at this stuff. And, uh, and anyway, the trucks got bigger and bigger. And uh, and soon we were uh, running at 44, 42, 44 tons, something like this. And at the same time as this, my, I moved. I moved a lot of uh, office equipment and uh, and denim for the Bannister Company. Mm -hmm. uh, the family of Roger Bannister, who was a four-minute miler in 1959. That's it. And uh, anyway, my brothers was working for the Bannister Company and and they was giving up with the denim and they asked my brother if he would like to, to carry on with running the denim side of things and they actually, I think they gave him all the denim business. Yeah. He obviously and, had the right genes. Well, in, in exactly. His... Yes, I think he must have had. Uh, <laughs> and, uh, you know, he must have had the jacket as well. <laughs> and, uh, anyway, <coughs> excuse me. Anyway, I brought all this stuff down from Dundee and uh, 
ensconced him locally in somewhere near Bradford or somewhere. Mm-hmm. Uh, but he wasn't there long because I got him some buildings very, very near home. And I'd heard that these buildings were for sale. And so I rang my brother up and said to him, can you come down and have a look at these buildings? I said, I think they'd be ideal for your job. And they were only about four or five year old with these buildings and they were all adjoining one another. And he came down and, and bought these, mm. him and a guy called Ernest Calvert. And uh, they bought these buildings and they were getting the top quality uh, denim from Greece. Uh-huh. And uh, and these guys used to come over with these old decrepit wagons, these Greek fellas. I wouldn't have gone down street in them. No. But they, they were turning up and they were dropping in bloody bits with these wagons. And, uh, and frequently they would break down. And I remember one guy came and, and he was there about 10 days. He had no money. He couldn't get his... Uh, he couldn't get his truck repaired because he'd no money. And uh, and he, he must have got some money from somewhere and he eventually the truck disappeared. And I was doing something like 150 tonnes to a week of mm. denim down into Birmingham uh, in the Midlands and Blackburn in Lancashire where there was a big... Uh, sub-Indian continent influx of people and also into the Leicester area where you'll remember when the coronavirus thing come up they they nearly closed Leicester and they said that all these factories down there was uh, there was hundreds of factories where the people were nearly sitting on one another's shoulders working sewing machines yeah and uh, and that then there was uh, 34 councillors in in Leicester mm. and two of them were conservative councillors and, and and 30 32 of them were uh, labor councillors and mm. and apparently these labor 32 labor councillors they must not have known about this uh, you know about these factories and but the papers eventually came out with it uh, uh, about this, this yeah. rife with coronavirus. That's right. And uh, I was delivering to all these people mm. back in the the late seventies and eighties, and and the nineties, of course, and uh, and that, and uh, also we was delivering. We was just delivering denim everywhere, mm. and. Uh, and there were all these factories making up making up these this denim into denim jeans and denim shirts and denim jackets anything denim denim skirts and yeah and uh, it wasn't Levi was it that was another. no no they they were all they were making for all sorts of major companies but the major companies were keeping the distance from them mm. especially when this coronavirus thing oh, yeah uh, took but they were and. There were stories in the papers about him working for two pound an hour, which uh, mm. which I can well believe because uh, uh, probably a lot of them were illegal anyway, and yeah. they, could, they weren't they weren't paying tax or they weren't paying stamp for these mm. people, and they were getting away. Uh, and one or two of them were quite prominent MPs, but would you uh, believe which it? I won't mention the no. name in and case they sue me because I haven't as much money as I no. used to have. And they <laughs> and they were. <laughs> 
They also had problems in Germany at the meat factories in North yeah, Germany. Yeah, yeah, I heard about this, yeah. Mm. Yeah, when we was running the trucks, Bernie, we was uh, doing a lot of bathroom equipment all over England and Ireland and Scotland and Wales, of course. Yeah. Uh, we were just doing all this nationwide, actually. And uh, when we went over to Ireland, I was working for a company called Charlie Votes, who did uh, a lot of work for Sainsbury's. And... Uh, and we used to go across to Ireland nine times a week, and it was costing me 500 quid per, per trip. Wow. Which uh, is a hell of a lot of money in a week, you mm. know, like 4,500 4, quid a week. Yeah. And, uh, and I was forced to laugh when I uh, heard about Boris Johnson in one of his... Uh, one of these things that they come up with and we're going to do this or we're, oh. looking, to, we're looking to do doing that. And one of the things that I laughed at was the fact that he was going to do a, a, a tunnel across <laughs> and from somewhere in Scotland uh, across to Ireland, which is a shortest route for Stranraer or oh, yeah. Cairn yeah. Ryan or somewhere up there. And I forced to laugh and it reminded me of an old joke that... Uh, I'd heard years and years before about the two Irish guys who set up a, a tunneling company. Right. And if you can imagine this, one of them starting in Scotland and the other is we are pick and shovel, <laughs> and uh, and the other starting in Ireland we are pick and shovel, <laughs> and they went to Boris Johnson to see if they could get this job of digging this tunnel across across the channel, and. Uh, and he said, well, how do you propose to do it? He says, well, Murphy's going to start at one side and I'm going to start at the other. He says, and, and then we'll meet in the middle. <laughs> and he says, and it's going to cost you £2,700 for this tunnel. <laughs> and he says, well, that's a good price, is that? And he says, what, what if you miss meeting in the middle? Oh, he says, we've thought of that as well, Boris. We that case you'll get two tunnels for the price of one. <laughs> <laughs> and I wish we could have uh, had a tunnel. And uh, this remind taking me back. Uh, I uh, I did a I did a thing with the Dubliners many years ago when they were actually the Dubliners. Uh-huh. And uh, not not the Dubliners as they are now. Uh, maybe only one, maybe John Sheehan, who is uh, the fiddle player, who who is actually one of the original Dubliners. Ah. Uh, but I can't say for sure. But when uh, when it was, I'm talking back a lot of years, maybe thirty years, uh-huh. and uh, and it was the actual uh, the actual Dubliners, you know. Yeah, and uh, they were a great band. And good drinkers too, <laughs> and and uh, I remember John Sheen Sheen. I don't think John Sheen drinked uh, uh, drunk beer at all or anything. I don't think he were, but there were the others uh, made did, made they up. made up for him. And uh, I remember uh, the the table being full of 
uh, all sorts of drinks. And he said to me, uh, what would you like, Pete? And I said, oh, I'll have a glass of wine. And he just gave me the full bottle, <laughs> you know. And uh, and that, but they're a, a lovely bunch of guys as well. I thought, yeah. they were, uh, thought they were great guys, yeah. Fancy that, the Dubliners, they're a famous act, aren't they? Well, yeah, they're still uh, still going, and I, I met briefly Christy Moore, who is probably the most famous uh, singer in Ireland, even at this time. Mm. And uh, I had a couple of laughs with Christy, but uh, only spent a couple of days in his company, which I think was enough, really. Yeah, yeah. Uh, you know, nothing against him, of course, but it, it, it was it was just a case, you know. <laughs> yeah, nice and memories. Yeah, uh, as you know, I've got lots of memories from. So you combined your trucking with the musical thing at well, times. Well, uh, you know, I, I knew these people uh, before before from before trucking, mm. doing the trucks a bit, and and an odd time. Uh, an odd time you come across them and oh if they were doing a show I'd think oh I'll go there tonight and yeah and see him you know see see them yeah great and they're about covered me time in the truck driving over in Ireland yeah know. excellent excellent mm. we've got some good stuff down on that great thank you Pete um I'll just push down the faders yeah, well, I did this uh, quite a long while. I think altogether I was driving trucks for somewhere around about 41, 42 years. And uh, then uh, in, in the late 90s, uh, when the recession started and the uh, government were putting the price of diesel up every two days, I couldn't keep up with this thing and I was I had a lot of I was working for several companies big companies and and that and uh, I couldn't uh, I couldn't keep up with the prices of diesel going up and I got a little bit fed up of it and I'd, I'd made quite a quite a bit of money and, and I thought oh well I'm gonna get out of this job while, uh -huh. uh, while I still own all my own trucks and my trailers and that so I I uh, sold the lot i just got shut of everything right and uh but i still had my building and uh, what year was this pete can you remember oh, it was somewhere in the late late 90s okay 98 99 somewhere about that and uh and that and i can remember working uh, in my garage the the day of uh, princess diane's funeral uh-huh and I came into work that morning, and I don't. I was already getting the stuffing kicked out of me with, with these diesel hikes and mm. one thing or another. And it was all tax, and uh, that you're just paying tax on diesel, tax yeah. on top of tax, and one thing or another. And and I remember the day that uh, of the funeral of Princess Diane, and I'd come into work about five o'clock in the morning. And and the busy main road uh, from Yorkshire to Lancashire was absolutely deserted. And at the time when it come for the, the, the funeral, I went home and watched the funeral. And then mm. I went back to work because I'd still a lot of work. At this time, I had 12 uh, Mercedes trucks and tractor units. 
and 14 trailers. Right. And uh, and I decided I'd had enough of this, and I got out. Mm. And I was able to sell sell all the trucks and stick a bit in the uh, back pocket as well, which you do. A few and uh, if Hand the notes. tax man wants to come about it, uh, well, I can't remember what I did, but how much <laughs> I, I stuck in my back pocket, but, uh, you know. Yeah. And, uh, yeah, and I got out, and I was quite happy about that, and, and I immediately went back to America. Oh. Got on a plane, and I flew out to America to see some friends that I'd made and one thing or another, and I stopped out there somewhere around about three months. Uh, traveling about and uh, again I came back and I had no work or anything and uh, so I was starting again but I knew a lot of people and a lot of people knew me and uh, and I got quite a quite a lot of work driving independently for other people so I was coming down into Germany and Duisburg places like that and and uh, I, uh, one of the things that stands out to me of that time when I was, I was in Duisburg one day and uh, I was stood at the side of the road waiting to go into one of these factories and I had a, a full load of refrigerators on the big leaning supermarket fridges and an old guy came up to me and he, he looked at the truck and he says, you're an English guy and I said, yeah. And he says, well, I'd just like you to know that when uh, I got made a prisoner of war, he says, I was a submariner. He says, and I got to, I got to ensconced in, in Oxford. Do you know Oxford? And I said, yeah, I know Oxford. Because uh, I've been a truck driver uh, for many, many years. And, uh, and he says, well... He said something to me which I thought was very nice. He says, I'd just like to tell you that when I was a prisoner of war, he says, I got treated very well by... The, he says, I worked on the farm. He says, I'd been a farmer in Germany, he says, and, and that before I was a submariner. And uh, I said, it weren't a yellow submarine by any chance, were it? And, no, no, it weren't a yellow... I just stuck that in, it's not true in that. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, anyway, he, he went on to tell me how, how well he had been treated, which made me think about the Holocaust and what happened in Germany and uh, mm. and that with uh, prisoner of war camps and one thing or another. And uh, I, I, I drove independent, independently for quite a few people for a while and then... Uh, I just thought I'd had enough. But I still had the big warehouse garage that I kept all my trucks in. Oh. So I uh, let this off to a company and I was I was drawing good money every week for letting this big building off mm. to them. Uh, I can't remember what they were putting in, in my building, but they, they, they were quite happy... Uh, quite happy using it, and yeah. uh, and then uh, they decided that they were going to build a unit somewhere, and would would I let them have my unit until they built one? And I said, "Yeah, 
It's fine by me. Great. And uh, yeah, it was good money for me, and I was drawing something every every week, and uh, and then it came to a time where I was retiring age. Yeah. So so I retired, and uh, and then when this company moved out, I uh, I put the building up for sale, and I'd been out. I I had a little jaunt out into America, and when I came up, I said to my wife. Uh, has the has anybody been on uh, asking about the building? Then they said, uh, she said no. And so, before I went to America, a fella had said to me, uh, uh, you know, I'd like to buy a building. And I said, well, there's a, I've promised it to to a fella. Uh, and anyway, this fella never came back about the building, and I went to this to the guy who said he wanted to buy the building and he bought the building and and what he was making he put a, a he put a production line in making mate pies oh uh, which lancashire yorkshire people seem to like a mate pie when they have a beer <laughs> so anyway i sold this building to uh, to this fella and uh I don't, I don't know what it is now. When, to me, like a lot of people said to me, "Oh, you'll miss your trucks," and I said, "Yeah, and he, I miss my trucks like a hole in the like head, a <laughs> kick up the arse sort of thing." And uh, and that, and so I was, I was totally out of this haulage business, and uh, I wasn't in love with trucks or anything like some people do, and mm. but they they served a purpose and. And that was a thing for me.